Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabison Hoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Tributes pour in for Zimbabwean music legend Oliver Mdugudzi and South African soccer legend film singer to be laid to rest today. In economics news, the World Economic Forum discusses the cost of reskilling workers. And in sports news, Petra Kidvatov reaches her first ever Australian Open final. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Opposition leader Felix Tshisekedi will be sworn in at midday Central African time as the Democratic Republic of Congo's president. The inauguration will take place at the Palace of the Nation, the seat of the presidency, according to aides to Tshisekedi and outgoing President Joseph Kabila. It will be the first peaceful transition of power in the history of the DRC, which gained independence from Belgium in 1960. 55-year-old Tshisekedi will will be taking the helm from Kabila, who at only 47 has ruled the country for 18 years. Meanwhile, the outgoing president of the DRC, Joseph Kabila, has urged citizens to support Tshisekedi. The DRC's constitutional court at the weekend upheld Tshisekedi's victory and rejected an appeal by the runner-up Marte Fayolo, who argues that Tshisekedi had made a power-sharing deal with Kabila. Speaking in a televised address, Kabila says he would hand over power without regret and urge the nation to come together. I invite you all to support Felix Tshisekedi en masse in the same way you've supported me during the past 18 years. I call on our youth in particular, the future of our country. The leader of an international aid group says the Central African Republic is steering toward a catastrophe unless a new round of peace talks in Sudan this week succeed. Jan Engeland, the Norwegian Refugee Council Secretary General, says repeated cycles of violence in one of the world's poorest nations have pushed people's resistance to breaking point. He adds that a majority of the 2.9 million people urgently need humanitarian support. The Central African Republic has faced interreligious and inter communal fighting since 2013, with violence intensifying and spreading in recent months. Nigeria's anti-trafficking agency says it has found thousands of missing girls and women in southern Mali, many of whom were sold as sex slaves. According to the agency NAPTUP, there are between 20 and 45,000 kidnapped Nigerian women in Mali who intend to return to 
who they intend to return to Nigeria. The organization's director general, Julie Okadon Lee, says the women mostly came from rural areas of six different states in Nigeria. It's believed the girls were tricked into going to Mali by giving them the impression that they were going to get jobs in hotels. And finally, South Africa's Minister of Arts and Culture, Natim Tetwa, has expressed condolences on the passing of legendary Zimbabwean jazz musician Oliver Mutukutsi. The musician died on Wednesday at the age of 66. Reports suggest he was ill for some time and died in a hospital in Harare. Mtetwa says the world has lost a giant whose music gave hope during the darkest of times. The BBC's Stanley Quenda looks back on Mutukutsi's life. Mutukuzi came to prominence in Zimbabwe prior to independence in 1980 when he joined forces with U.S.-based Zimbabwean musician Thomas Mafumo to provide the sound of the revolution at a time when the country was fighting the government of Ian Smith. Post-independence, he used his unmistakable husk voice to provide profound political and social commentary. Most of his music was coded to escape the wrath of a government averse to criticism. Mutukuzi's career spanned more than four decades with 67 albums to his name. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Musicians on the African continent are paying tribute to the late Zimbabwean music legend Oliver Mdugutsi. The 66-year-old human rights activist died yesterday at the Avenues Clinic in, a, in Harare after a short illness. Mdugutsi was a UNICEF goodwill ambassador for the Southern African region. Sophie Mugwena has more. What shall we do? What shall we do? Dugu, as he was affectionately known, rose to fame when he joined the wagon, a band that went gold with their first single in 1977. Dugu was multilingual, he sang in Shona language, incorporated it with Ndebele and English. And his fellow musicians in Zimbabwe, Albert Nyati, McDonald Cheda Vainzi, Tatenda Mahachi, say his passing is a great loss. I'm really very sorry. It's difficult to, to say. It's difficult to accept. Uh, I, I, I have no words. Just as we were, we've had performances together, both at home and in Europe, and suddenly this, it's difficult to accept. Uh, it's too much. We've lost a father. When I say father, I mean like literally a father. I remember last Father's Day, he called us to Pagaripai and Tabit uh, Zazuare say we were watching Neria and then we were talking about the old times and then he made uh, the team aggressive to cook lunch for us. He would treat artists like, like sons, you know what I mean? So just being here and getting such a shocker, you ask yourself who's going to be our father in the music industry? Who's going to keep us sane, you know, when we lose control? Uh, it's too much. 
it's very sad and it's very hard to accept that uh, Dr. Oliver Mtukudzin so is no more. And uh, to me, I remember him as a humble guy. To me, he was a father, he was a friend. He taught me a lot of things. I used to spend a lot of time at his home with him. Even when I worked with him on the song we did together, you never, you never showed that he's not in the same le- he is not on the same level with me. When you see us working, when it was about music, we worked as if we are on the same level. You could take my opinions as if they are coming from someone else. He had a number of tours around the world, performing for large crowds in the United Kingdom, the United States of America, Canada, and Lesotho. Mtukuti's incredible career includes over 50 studio albums. The purpose of song is to touch and to touch the next heart, give life and hope, heal the broken heart. If, if, if they can take that and heal themselves from my music, I'll be grateful. He was meant to perform at the Joy of Jazz Festival in Cape Town in March. Retiring really is like running away from yourself, and I can't do that. So there's no retiring in art. Sophie Mugwen, Johannesburg. The funeral service of the late Bafana Bafana striker Philemon Chipa Masinga is expected to be held this morning in Kuma Stadium in South Africa's northwest province. The coffin carrying the remains of the legend proceeded to the Anglican church yesterday before it was taken to his home for the last time. Masinga died a week ago at the Johannesburg Hospital after battling with a cancer for a while. High-profile persons, including provincial executive, ministers and South African Football Association representatives are expected to attend the service. Zebulon Maine has more. Thousands of monas are expected to attend the funeral of the late Chepa Masinga in Kuma Stadium. The Maki tent, which was erected early on Monday before the memorial service on Tuesday, is expected to house over 2,000 people. The second one, that will house about 100 dignitaries, is also erected at the home of the late Philemon Chepa Masinga. Sound system, including lighting and decorations, are completed. Employees of the Matosana local municipality were seen fixing high mass lights around the stadium while others were sweeping the roads and painting road marks. However, all systems are in place for the funeral service of the late Philemon Chipa Masinga. Family spokesperson Majoro Nupani. So number one, we're expecting the Premier of the Northwest to be there. We're expecting Ntatemelu uh, Sukikaba to be there. We're expecting uh, Mr. Jomo Sono to be there. We're expecting the Minister of Sports to be there. We're expecting um, uh, Sundown's family to be there. The entire uh, Sundown's family will be here tomorrow. So the program will start exactly at 7 o'clock. We are anticipating to finish not later than 10 o'clock. Residents of Kuma on the streets can't stop expressing Masinga's character. They say unlike other people who achieved international acclaim like him, his humility and lightheartedness. He was a sportsman. He used to jog in the morning. And then when you greet him, he will respond like all our fans, all our guys. Yeah, he was a good person. He was a good role model to all of us, Yeah, to all of the youngsters and then the upcoming stars of 
Kuma. Some of the former players who played alongside Masinga, such as Fabian McCarthy and James Mutibi, say Masinga has put the province on the map through the love he had for football. He put our province on the map. He's the first one who went to, to the World Cup from the province. So I respect for a lot for that. He gave it back to me and the other junior legends you know he showed respect he gave respect where he was very humble he went through a lot when he stopped retiring but it never stopped him from encouraging some of us to say you can do this you can do this 1997 16 august he did not know it was my birthday when he scored that beautiful goal in 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 fnb against Congo Brazzaville. Meanwhile, a high police contingency has been deployed in Kuma for security reasons. Deputy Cluster Commander of Tlaxdop Brigadier Peter Juma says a tight security arrangement is also in place. As the police, we are ever ready. Uh, it's our constitutional mandate to ensure that all the dignitaries that will be attending uh, the funeral of our late brother, Philemon Chipamasinga, will be safe and uh, we'll ensure that everybody around Kuma where the funeral is going to take place is safe. The funeral service has been set to begin at 7 o'clock and later proceed to Heroes Acre at Stillfontein. I'm Zebulon Maine in Kuma near Tlexdop in the northwest. Two of the four survivors of the recent Mozambican Portuguese island incident which claimed four lives say the only memories they have now is desperation and regret. A group of eight young people went to the island to celebrate the birthday of one of their friends. They were swept away by heavy currents killing four while the other four survived. Limpopo MEC for Social Development Mapule Mokaba Pukwane visited the families of the survivors and deceased on Wednesday. Rodzani Chivasa was more. The MEC and the entourage started by visiting the Rampodo Royal Kroll at Tafelkop village before visiting three other families. Chief Rampodo's son, Vincent, is amongst the survivors. Vincent Rampodo says they went to the island to enjoy and little did they know that it will change their lives for bad. Yeah, it really, really affected us. I mean, like we went to to Mozambique to celebrate one of our friends' uh, birthday, of which it was on the 14th of January, 2010, this year. So what happened is that uh, we went to the beach, and then next thing, people like just, you know, things um, didn't go accordingly. And so obviously, um, the purpose of us going that side, it was for us to enjoy ourselves and to be happy. Um, but then suddenly, like, things just changed into confusion, you know, desperation um, and regret. Another survivor, Lise Dimutung, a student at the University of Johannesburg, says she is still in a shock. We took um, a boat cruise from Maputo, Maputo Harbor, I think they call it Marina, and we went to Inaga Island, the first island, and then we had lunch there. And then from Inaga Island, we went to Portuguese Island. So the plan was to have a swim day and return around 4 in the afternoon. We got to Inaga Island, I think, around 2. Uh, we took pictures and then went for a swim in the, in the, in the sea. We then realized that we were further into the sea, like the distance. So we, we decided to go out and then the, the, the rest were remaining, the five were remaining because they could swim. So we, we don't know how to swim, so we're like, no, rather, let's just rather go out. We went out, but after a while, we realized that we couldn't see them anymore. But we could see one trying to come back to the shore. 
MC Mapola Mukawapukwane says the affected survivors will continue receiving counselling. The, the, the counselling is going to continue even after the funeral and we have started with, the, with, with counselling with all the families. As I said, that the, what we are going to assist, we are going to do counselling. What we are concentrating on is only counselling for now. We are still going to hear from the family other things that maybe they will want us as families to assist. We will sit down and talk to them. But what we are concentrating on is cancelling for now. The funeral, yes, is going to be a joint funeral, which will be on Sunday. There will be a joint funeral service for the two ladies at the Hroblasdal Rugby Stadium on Sunday. The other two men will be buried at their respective provinces in Mpumalanga and the Free State. I am Ruzan Chibase. Village of Limbobo. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's all systems go for the final registration drive this coming weekend ahead of the national and provincial elections expected to be held in May. The Commission CEO Sai Mamabulo says they hope to have more people flocking to the more than 20,000 voting stations. Nglantlamatlang reports. The Independent Electoral Commission says there are 26 million people on the voters' roll and 55% of them are women and 45% are men. The Chief Executive Officer of the Electoral Commission, Sai Mamabolo, says the commission is eager to get more young people registering on the voters' roll. He says following this weekend's voter registration, special registration drives will be rolled out at tertiary institutions in February with a view to woo more young people. Mamabolo also revealed that there are over a million registered people whose addresses still need to be verified. The 1.5 million people for whom we don't have addresses, they are going to vote subject to them providing an address or a place of ordinary description of a place of ordinary residence uh, in the voting station. As I indicated, our hope is that they'll come over this weekend and so that we reduce that number significantly. But if that does not materialize, then on election day, before they vote, they will need to provide an address or alternatively a description of where they live. Meanwhile, the party funding bill, which is viewed as a step that will improve transparency in party funding, has been signed by President Cyril Ramaphosa. The new law will prohibit certain donations being made directly to political parties and compel them to disclose private donations to the Electoral Commission. Mamabolu explains. We are planning to implement the Party Funding Act on the 1st of April. And the practicalities are such that it may be impossible for parties to be able to submit their um, disclosures before election date. But soon thereafter, there will be a requirement for them to submit, and that may include elections-related expenditure. The IEC has called on all South Africans, especially young people, to use this weekend's registration drive as the final opportunity to register and ensure that their addresses are in order. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantamatlangu in Johannesburg. Leader of South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, Musimaimani, says leaders who are implicated in the State Capture Commission must be arrested. Maimani was speaking at Umlazi in the Natal province during his campaign to encourage citizens to use this weekend's final voter registration weekend to register to vote in the upcoming general elections. Finally, Mklongo reports. 
potential voters are being urged to register to vote this weekend. Maimane is on a tour in Natal to engage with residents and to drum up support ahead of the final voter registration weekend. Natal still has over a million people with missing information on the voters' role. The IEC has raised concerns that the youth numbers are low. DA leader Musi Maimane was accompanied by DA Natal premier candidates Zwagele Mwango and activist. My money says people can bring about change through their vote. The biggest fight coming into this election is that we want to make sure as a party that in every home there's at least one job so that our people can find work and there's dignity of having a job. We want to make sure citizens are safe. We want to make sure we eradicate corruption and that politicians who are implicated in things like Bosasa and VBS spend 15 years behind bar. We must send them to prison. We want to ensure that we deliver better services. And the power is in citizens' hands. They can come and bring a change that builds that South Africa. That's why we are here today to engage citizens, inviting them this weekend to say on the 26th and 27th, let all of us register because it's our opportunity to rescue our country from a criminal syndicate who have looted for the last number of years. The Democratic Alliance has laid charges of corruption against Environmental Affairs Minister Nomvula Mokonyane for her alleged role in state capture. Former Bosasa COO Angelo Agrizi told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Parktown in Johannesburg that Mokonyane received monthly bribes. My money says those implicated in the State of Inquiry Commission must face the full might of law. Nomvula mustn't be fired only. She must be arrested. It proves what was happening in Bosasa, that corruption is not just a few individuals. It's a party-wide issue. The ANC in its character is a corrupt organization. And therefore our call is simple. In these elections, why should we send the ANC to parliament? We should send them to prison. And therefore I want to know why Nomvula has not resigned, why no one from the NC has been held to account, even against such damning allegations. Our call always maintains, send these people to prison rather than sending them to parliament. Meanwhile, residents have raised concerns that politicians only come to them during election periods. Political leaders must come to us even when it's not election period and listen to our concerns. They all come to us during the election period. Maimane also said his party will engage the families of life as it many victims whose names are written on a DA election billboard. The billboard that was erected outside the Johannesburg CBD has angered the families who have said they consider it inappropriate. The billboard lists the names of all the victims of Marikana, Life Esitemeni, and the children that have drowned in pit latrines. I'm Fanny Lemtongo in Deben. Former Bosasa COO Angelo Agrizi continued with his damning testimony at the South African Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. Agrizi gave details of contracts obtained by the company in the Correctional Services Department. He told the commission about the dealings of the front companies that were used by Bosasa to get tenders. Mbali Tetani reports. 
Former Busasa COO Angela Gritzi continued with his explosive testimony. He has now been on the witness stand for six days and was taken through the SIU report and 10-day regularities at the Correctional Services Department. This was done to see whether his evidence corroborated with the report which was released in 2009. Gritzi told the Commission about an access control tender for prisons with millions of rands. He told the Commission how the tender, which was granted to Sondola IT, a company affiliated to Busasa, which was a company established just days before the tender application deadline was granted irregularly, as one of the requirements was for the company to have been in operation for at least five years. We knew exactly what to design, so we had the upper hand. There was absolutely no ways, given the fact that they had reduced the tender submission date from 30 days to 21, that anybody could compete with us. Agritzi also confirmed to the Commission that Busasa CEO Gavin Watson asked the SIU for time before it started its investigation so he could delete information that would incriminate the company. This was when the SIU was looking into irregular tenders granted by Busasa by Correctional Services. This was a totally separate incident which related to a specific um, virus that was put onto the server to clean up any documents that might incriminate Basasa. Agrees also confirmed to the Commission that there were flaws in how some tenders were issued to Sondola IT and how the bidding period for the tender was reduced from 30 to 21 days. This was to enable Sondola IT to win the tender. Agritzi told the commission that one of the requirements for the access control tender was to visit all the prisons in the country. This would have been impossible in such a short space of time, but it still got the tender. Chair, the technical um, requirements would mean that you would actually have to go out and understand the correctional services environment. It also means that you would have to design a system and ensure because it is an integrated system and it had various levels of control and it was a distributed network not only over a local facility but nationally on a national grid would, would require quite a lot of work. The commission continues on Thursday. Ambali, Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. Zambia's Young African Leaders Initiative says it is disappointed at the manner in which the country's national dialogue process is being handled. The dialogue process, which was launched last week at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross Church, collapsed due to disagreements over the agenda of what needs to be discussed during the process. Some political parties, such as the ruling Patriotic Front and the Zambia Center for Interparty Dialogue did not attend the dialogue launch, lamenting the lack of inclusivity in the process. The long-awaited dialogue is aimed at encouraging Zambians to embrace peace and unity in order to foster national development. President of Zambia's Young African Leaders Initiative, Andrew Ndewewe, says the process will not succeed if all stakeholders are not included. The first reason uh, which we believe caused the collapse of the dialogue process uh, was the fact that there was confrontation and lack of cooperation among 
facilitators of the dialogue process. As you rightly indicated, there was an agreement that uh, the dialogue was going to be facilitated by the Zambia Center for Interparty Dialogue, which is a body mandated to ensure that there is interparty dialogue among political parties and the church mother body. However, uh, it seems that the relationship uh, between the church and the Zambia Center for Interparty Dialogue uh, was not harmonious. There was no cooperation, and as a result of the lack of cooperation, that is the reason why this process has, has failed. Uh, initially, the church and the CID had agreed that there were preparatory activities that were supposed to be done. Uh, among them was, one, ensure that the secretariat for the dialogue process is put in place. Number two, that the agenda is put forward so that as people come to the dialogue process, there is a clear agenda as to what was going to be discussed. These preparatory activities were not done. So as a result of the fact that the preparatory activities were not done and there was no clarity on the nature as well as the actual overall objective of the dialogue process, no wonder it has eventually Where did the church get the mandate then, Andrew, to facilitate this process? Because it seems the church has been taking the lead in facilitating this process. Actually, this is one of the reasons what we have put in place as a Young African Leaders Initiative. What we have said is that uh, the other key reason for the failure is the fact that both the church and the PID do not have any legal mandate in our constitution to handle such a dialogue. Uh, For instance, if you take a listen to what the church have been talking about, they have been saying that the process would take up to about three years. Now, the question which we have been asking from the early point of view has been, what is it that is going to be discussed for such a long period of time? The dialogue did not have a clear agenda. And listening to the people that uh, have been promoting and talking about this dialogue and the expansive nature in which they wanted the dialogue done, our view is the fact that Zambia is not in a crisis. Uh, Zambia is not coming from a war situation. Uh, Institutions of governance are operating reasonably well. And and, and so the the whole process, it was too elaborate. The whole process uh, was exaggerated, if you like. Now, what happens next, uh, Mr. Ntewewe, because uh, the process has now collapsed? What happens next? Our view as a Young African Leaders Initiative is the fact that the key semantic areas which people wanted to discuss at the dialogue, we're not supposed to miss focus for that. We're not supposed to miss focus on the fact that we wanted to discuss issues on the Constitution, on electoral reform, as well as on the Public Order Act. And what we are saying to government now and the Ministry of Justice is simple. is the fact that now that this dialogue has collapsed, the only way we are able to proceed, the only way we are able to move forward is simple. Can we take the constitutional amendment, can we take the electoral reform bill, as well as the Public Order Act to Parliament for amendment? You, you want to understand that our constitution has given legislative power. To parliament. There's no any other body that has got the power to amend or make laws. And, and we have stated that even if you had a dialogue process under the auspices of the church, the truth of the matter is that it would just remain consultative. It would not have any force of legal backing that what is discussed at the dialogue can be enforced or taken to parliament and it has the force of law. So the next step forward which is supposed to be taken is the fact that the government must not abdicate its responsibility of making laws.
And here we call on the Minister of Justice, as well as the President of the Republic of Zambia, to take up leadership on this matter and ensure that all the reforms that are required to be done can be done as quickly as possible. We have been sitting on these reforms for some time, and any further delay is not going to be helpful. You must be aware that, uh, uh, for instance, uh, we, we go to a general election in, in 2021. Now, if we are going to be dealing and talking about reforms, uh, talking about dialogue and moving in provinces, how long will that take us? So our, our, our argument is very simple. We have a properly functioning parliament. We have properly functioning institutions of governance. Let every other matter that needed to be discussed, in particular that one that requires legislative reform, to be taken to parliament for purposes of amendment of the law so that we are able to, to deal with that, the process of amending uh, the, the, the pieces of legislation. That's Andrew Ndewewe, president of Zambia's Young African Leaders Initiative, on the line from the capital, Lusaka, speaking to Kumbela Mujelele. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, as Felix Tshisekedi prepares to be sworn in as the president of the DRC, the outgoing leader, Joseph Kabila, has urged citizens to give Tshisekedi their support. The Norwegian Refugee Council says the Central African Republic is steering towards a catastrophe unless a new round of peace talks in Sudan this week succeeds. And at least five people have been killed after a gunman opened fire at a bank in the U.S. state of Florida. Those are the stories making headlines. Malawi and other African countries have seen foreign direct investment inflows fall by 19% in 2018 to an estimated 1.2 trillion US dollars, a level comparable to the low point reached after the global financial crisis. The decline was concentrated in developed countries, while FDI in developing economies remained resilient. As George Mangle reports, the UN Conference on Trade and Development Global Investment Trends Monitor Report analyzes the most recent trends in global investment and assesses its prospects. The UN report indicates that Malawi trailed neighboring countries such as Mozambique, which attracted $5.9 billion dollars, Zambia $1.8 billion and Tanzania $1.9 billion. Some business analysts contend that most of the foreign direct investment into the neighboring countries was in extractive industries. Others point out that Malawi still needs to overhaul the doing business environment. For blunter based Laos Chiwalo, however, he agrees that Malawi misses out on economic growth and job creation due to the lower foreign direct investment levels and lack of political will. While we appreciate the fact that, you know, um, a government would want to actually have taxes to actually run its affairs, but at the end of the day, tax incentives are the ones that actually bring in uh, foreign and direct investments. You know, it attracts a lot of investments in any country in the world. So what it means, simply means is that if you cannot have direct investments, uh, you know, foreign direct investments or local investments where people can be able to uh, were given uh, you know, tax incentives, 
you, you realize that at the end of the day, uh, people may not be interested to invest, and that's consequently means that you know they may not contribute to reduce uh, unemployment in your country. Because when you look at investors, they really uh, their main goal is that to simply reduce unemployment. But President Peter Mutarika noted that the business environment in Malawi has in recent years deteriorated due to some macroeconomic, security and structural challenges. He said this has led to several economic problems including low volume of foreign direct investment, low industrial output and unsustainable structural trade deficit. Mutarga said in view of this, the government will strive to address the challenges by carrying out some regulatory and institutional reforms aimed at addressing constraints affecting enterprise. He says he would restore hope in foreign investors so they come back and invest in Malawi. We are now beginning to have new friends. We have new friends in China, for example, but also we have new, new, new friends in the emerging economies. A good example is Brazil, India, the so-called BRICS countries, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, BRICS, will deal with all those countries. When I was foreign minister, the biggest investment in this country, $2 billion, came from Brazil. I am one of the leaders who signed that agreement. And therefore, we have continued relations with our non-traditional partners. These relationships are not mutually exclusive. Everyone there's room for everybody in this country. Malawi has over the past years been performing poorly on ease of doing business and global competitiveness. But what could be the way out for Malawi to continue attracting more investors? Chiwalo again. It's the business, it's the private sector that plays a greater role in any economic development of any country. You cannot ignore that. So. Obviously, uh, in any government, government would want to see its economy grow. You are well aware that okay, we are living in a country which is actually the poorest country in the world. Fifty years down the line, we've got nothing to show. What it means is that you know we did not have policies which could have articulated you know this kind of you know factor like you know uh, the private sector being given incentives so that they should be able to grow. So in the course of trying to grow, they could have actually come up, you know, uh, you know, with various, you know, concepts, interventions, you know, helping government to actually reduce unemployment, uh, bring in a lot of things into the economic, you know, uh, development. But Mutarika maintained a stand that business and economy are at the central part of the current government. The jobs we have can accommodate only about 10% of the people who are looking for jobs. And therefore I'm glad to say we have already made and decided very soon we will begin to implement the community college program so that all our kids will be able to go to school, learn skills, also learn how to run businesses, learn how to serve credit, service credit, so that it can be self-employed. It remains to be seen as to whether the current government of President Peter Mutarika would indeed improve the situation, otherwise job creation would be a challenge. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre.
South Africa says it is considering doubling the amount of electricity it plans to buy from a proposed multi-billion dollar hydropower plant in the Democratic Republic of Congo to 5,000 megawatts. South Africa had committed to purchasing 2,500 megawatts from the dam known as Inga 3 in a 2013 agreement between the two countries. In December, South African Energy Minister Jeff Khadebe notified the Congolese authorities of his government's willingness to increase the amount it will purchase. The Inga 3 project is expected to produce 11,000 megawatts of power when completed and will be the largest hydropower project on the continent. According to Ted Blom, South African energy expert, buying electricity from the Inga project will be good for South Africa. I think it's an absolute pie in the sky because this project has been on the card since 1960, if I remember correctly, in various guises. I worked on it when I was in the coal industry the first time in 1980. But if it happens, I mean, and if the tariff is, is, is favorable, it would be a blessing to South Africa because we cannot carry on with a broken ESCOM. I mean, ESCOM, I mean, the hearings in Bloemfontein today, and we've heard time and time again that ESCOM is broken, it's corrupt, it's insolvent, and uh, and the current uh, structure is not able to carry on doing business. So if there's a 5,000 megawatt injection from Inga, uh, I wish it could be tomorrow because uh, that would at least provide some stability for South African business. Uh, where we're standing now, um, we're don't, not even sure if the lights are going to be on next week. Uh, the, the financial pressure and operational pressures on ESCOM are so dire. Uh, so I think it's good news, uh, provided it comes soon and comes cheap. Now, do you think uh, the Inga project will be a game changer once it's complete, uh, as other energy experts believe? Uh, absolutely, because uh, it's hydropower, and if we can get that power down here at uh, an affordable price, I mean, the hydropower that you get from Kabora Bassa is under five cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that would be a real game changer because that would bring down electricity prices. And uh, if Keston uh, was not corrupt, uh, we should be paying no more than 40 cents a kilowatt hour, which is about 60% less than what uh, they're currently trying to charge us. So uh, that would enforce our hand to go for cheaper power and would, uh, would immediately uh, start stimulate the economy, stimulate the mind, stimulate job creation. If it can come in at a comparable price to Kabora Bassa, it would be a tremendous game changer for the South African economy. South Africa's Parliamentary Energy Committee in November last year cast doubt on the wisdom of relying on the Congolese project recommending that alternatives be found to replace the required megawatts of offtake in the event that the Grand Inga project does not come online in time. You are talking to us from the NASA public hearings which will determine the tariffs that ESCOM will charge in future. Do you think a tariff increases uh, the required alternatives in order for ESCOM to keep the lights on? Well, that's part and parcel of the problem. I understand, I mean, historically, because of apartheid, uh, there was a philosophy not to have to import power in case uh, political pressure is brought upon the government uh, and uh, the power is uh, unceremoniously cut. But we're now long past apartheid. So uh, the real issue is sustainability of that power feed from Inga. As I said, this thing has been on the lines on the drawing board since 1960, if not before. Uh, and, and, and so it's high time that something happens in this regard. And hopefully with a new 
new elections in the DRC and the new uh, regime, uh, there is a better chance of this project happening. But by the same token, I think certain milestones need to be planted and cemented in the ground so that we don't sit and wait forever for the Inga to happen and then nothing happens and then we caught with our pants around our ankles in South Africa. Uh, it's clear that ESCOM's current uh, system is unsustainable. Uh, they are on the verge of falling over operationally and financially. And uh, so I, I would agree that uh, some other uh, solution needs to be found. But I don't think it's going to be found in just increasing the tariffs because even in ESCOM's current application here in Bloemfontein, uh, the, the the implications, as they've admitted, is that if they increase the tariff by 15% a year uh, for the next three years, plus the 4% that has already been approved, plus the 10% for the RCA, uh, there's going to be at least a bloodbath in the economy in terms of jobs loss. They're forecasting 134,000 families to be uh, left destitute uh, with this price increase. And I don't know whether this government can afford to put another 134,000 families below the breadline and then have to hand out uh, subsidies or something like that. And anyway, it's not a dignified way to live. No, no, people want work. People want the opportunity to have the dignity. And uh, putting up the tariff uh, to keep a fat catch on the corruption of Eskom fluid is not the answer. And that's been the vogue uh, of the discussions here at NURSA today in Bloemfontein. People are fed up. Even the panel at NURSA is fed up because Eskom is not be transparent. And the whole application is on a business as usual basis. We're in the background. You know, I know. The president is bending over backwards with his wise men to try and solve the problems of Eskom. Mr. Pravin Gordon has said Eskom is not sustainable in its current format. Yet the Eskom fat cats and bureaucrats just ignore all those requirements and the parliamentary committee has told them to clean up. They're just ignoring all that. They fired 10 executives. They need to get rid of 35,000 people. So the issue for South Africa's population is, do we fire 35,000 incompetent fat cats at Eskom who haven't got work to do, or do we as a trench and fire 134,000 innocent families' jobs because Eskom is putting up uh, the tariff part of 10% per annum. That's the issue for South Africa. That's Ted Blom, South African energy expert, speaking to Kumbele Munjelele. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Our economics update up next with Chabisa Luhuku. Good morning. The first South African Black Tobacco Farmers Association has been launched in Pretoria this morning. The association is constituted by 155 black emerging tobacco farmers from different parts of the country. It will see black farmers organizing themselves formally to advance their interests. The Black Tobacco Farmers Association says its mission is to protect South African tobacco farming and the 10,000 jobs it supports from illegal cigarettes. A recent independent study by Global 
global market research firm, Ipsos, shows that illegal cigarettes now make up 42% of the informal tobacco market. The South African Revenue Service is losing 52 million US dollars in revenue as the manufacturers of illicit cigarettes do not pay excise tax. The cost of reskilling millions of workers misplaced by the fourth industrial revolution has raised questions at the World Economic Forum taking place in Davos, Switzerland. There are concerns that the cost will largely fall on governments. Millions of workers could be displaced by the advancements in a new technology, resulting in either job losses or reskilling. Speakers at the forum have urged both governments and companies to come with a funding model to reskill workers. Vice-Chancellor for the University of Cape Town in South Africa, Mamocheti Paking. But government has to invest. The business sector has to invest. Because if we as universities cannot produce people who are adequately skilled for the fourth industrial revolution, then government and industry is going to suffer and our country and our economy is going to suffer. So we need investment. We need conversations between universities, government and industry so that we get we can pump funding into the universities. The decision by India to implement loan waivers for millions of its farmers dominated emerging market discussions at the World Economic Forum. India's Chief Minister Kamal Nath told delegates at the gathering that his government took over loans totaling 8 billion US dollars in order to revive the sector. The International Monetary Fund has raised concerns about the decision. Nath explains. A farmer is born in debt and he dies in debt. So when you wave off a loan, you are in fact infusing that money into the state economy. You've got to really hold the bull by the horns. It's one step. It's not the end. It's one step towards reviving the agricultural sector. So what, what we've done is we've taken over these loans and asked the banks for a one-time settlement. Now they've done this for the industry and the banks have taken a haircut of 40 to 50%. So if they've taken a haircut for industry of 40 to 50%, then why not for farmers? A new bridge spanning the River Gambia is said to revolutionize the travel and trade in the region. The 1.9-kilometre Senegambia bridge links the two halves of the Gambia, as well as allowing people from the north of Senegal to reach the southern Senegalese province of Casamanche with ease. Up until now, people have had to use an unreliable boat to crossing or, or take the long route round the Gambia. A truck drivers could spend days and sometimes a week in a queue waiting to cross over, meaning that perishable goods could spoil. Celebrations broke out when the crossing, which took seven years to build, was formally opened by the Gambia's president, Adama Barrow, and his Senegalese counterpart, Meki Sal. Namibia's trade ministry has invited potential foreign investors to explore investment opportunities in the country as Zambia, or rather as Namibia, has adopted a special economic zones of policy that offers excellent incentives for foreign direct investment. Namibia represented the Southern Regional Bloc, SADC, and the ninth vibrant Gujarati Global Summit, which took place in India last weekend. The U.S. dollar is trading at 361.29 Nigerian Nara, a 1034 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shillings and 77 cents, and at 1191 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 379 Brazilian roll, 
6623 Russian rubles, 715 Indian rupee, 679 Chinese yuan, and 1387 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,282, platinum $795 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.90 a barrel. I'm Tabiso Nohoku. Our sports update up next with Neto Chumani. Thank you, Lulu, from the sports desk. A very good morning. Starting off with tennis news. The popular Czech, who survived a home invasion late in 2016, booked her spot in the 2019 Australian Open with a 7-6-6-0 win over American Daniela Collins. It will be the first time since her 2014 Wimbledon crown that she's made the final of a major, an achievement that cannot be understated given the adversity she's had to overcome. The 28-year-old endured a tight first-set battle against the unheralded Collins, but once her hit policy was triggered and the rod lever roof was closed, Kivitova excelled in the cooler conditions. Daniela Collins, who was playing in her Australian Open debut, bowed down with pride. Yeah, my first time playing on rod, le- rod lever and um, I didn't even practice on here before, so this was quite the experience and I absolutely love it. All of the Australian fans have really made me feel at home here and it's just an incredible atmosphere to play in so thank you so much to everybody that came out and supported me today in cricket news, Sri Lankan captain Dinesh Chandimal won the toss and chose to bat in the first test against Australia at the Gaba in Brisbane this morning. Australia looking to bounce back from their 2-1 series loss to India have named debutants Curtis Patterson and Jai Richardson and recalled opener Joe Benz for the day-night test. Sri Lanka have brought in batsman Lahiru Tirumane and Dananjaya De Silva for the first of the two test series. Sri Lanka have never won a test in Australia but got into the match with a chance of springing a surprise against the struggling hosts. In rugby news, Bulls and Springbok fly half a hundred Pollard says they will be going into the new Super Rugby season with a lot of belief and confidence. However, Pollard believes having a strong and experienced squad, which includes new acquisitions Dwayne Fermielen and Schalke Bretz, doesn't guarantee that they will do well and they will have to pitch up every weekend in the competition. It definitely helps having guys like Dwayne and Scala come in and, and like, like RK coming back from Japan to sort of Springbok now and, and all of these guys. But I mean, you still got to do the job. It's the toughest competition in the world. And, and uh, whether you Springbok or not, Super Rugby doesn't care about that. you got to be on some every weekend and you got to prepare very, very well. So we'll try our best in the next three weeks to get as well prepared as we can with the, with the limited time we have. Uh, but then you got to pitch up every weekend. Like I said, it's the toughest competition in the world. Yeah, I don't think it's so much pressure. I think it's a bit more belief. Uh, it's really a lot of good stuff from last year, so we'll, we'll try to take that on board again this year and, and improve on that again. Um, so no, not, not extra pressure, just extra confidence. 
Pollard says a good start to the Super Rugby competition will be critical, not only in the Bulls' opening match against the Stormers at Loftus-Versfeld, but all of their games in South Africa before going on tour. Oh, massive, massive. Uh, we won the first one last year and then we went four in a row. We lost, so, I mean, having a good start is not, it's not just the first weekend. It's, it's really the first four or five weeks. Uh, the firm performing consistently and uh, we got a four-game stretch with a bye coming up then, so we'll really just look at those four games and, and plan accordingly, week by week, but, but look at the bigger picture of those four games and try to get as much points as possible because we've got a late tour this year, so we have to get the points and, and win the own games as long as we're still here in South Africa. Under pressure, England coach Eddie Jones says he is doing nothing more than thinking about England beating Ireland. In the year's Six Years Nations opener, England adjured a tory to Six Nations in 2018, and Jones knows that his side will have to improve this year as they look to win the World Cup for the first time since 2003. Well, the only acceptable thing for us is to beat Ireland. That's the only thing we're worried about. Ireland's our number one priority. Obviously... The World Cup's there and, <clears throat> and everyone thinks about the World Cup. But the World Cup is nine months ago, nine months away. And, and we can't do things now that are going to make us a better team in the World Cup. All we can do is concentrate on beating Ireland and that's what we're trying to do. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for programming sport and news from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chamani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Tributes pour in for Zimbabwean music legend Oliver Mdugudzi and South African soccer legend Filma Singer to be laid to rest today. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadze and Kumuzo Pulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa.